Turning to gather your children. Mighty is the power of the cross. Let us, as we gather today, find that. Personally, corporately, let us find that as we turn to you this morning in repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. As we bring our hurts and our shames, our failures, our sorrows And we come before you as a people who need your presence and your blessing upon us through faith in Christ. Please, Father, we beseech you, we beg of you, make your presence not just promised, we know, but understood and experienced this morning as we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a joy to be with you, to share in the Lord's Word with you. It's been such a good journey through Romans 8 and into the study that we have done on the heart. And today I want to talk to you about the issue of the source. Uh, In the last few years I had some different health problems and one of them was that uh, I'd walked out to the mailbox one day and just a normal day and, and felt really short of breath. It was kind of a scary moment because I don't remember having that kind of shortness of breath apart from rigorous activity before. And it kind of scared me. And then it happened again on a couple of other occasions and I finally kind of uh, gave in and said, you know, I probably ought to go to the doctor, you know. Guys, we're a little bit hard-headed sometimes about that. I'm not as hard-headed as the normal guy. My family thinks I'm a a bit of a hypochondriac because I am. And, um, you know, I can imagine everything to be way worse than it is and get scared about it all at once. And, And so I went to the doctor and the doctor referred me to a cardiologist and went to the cardiologist. I had really good faith in him because, uh, Brother Jim had been to him and Miss Faye had been to him. And I said, he's got some seasoning and I see some good fruit from his life. And so I went there and he did a study and then he set me up for one of those uh, treadmill EKGs. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever had that? If you had that, raise your hand. Okay, so some of you know what this is like. It's weird. And so they hook you into all these contraptions and and then they set you on this uh, this treadmill and it starts off at like a snail's pace and you start moving on up and and you know I'm scared because I'm thinking I'm gonna I've had some issues little hypochondria going on I'm gonna die right here at least he's gonna be by me to help me out so I get the speed up and I start running and I'm finally I'm just at a full tilt wide open hard as I can go and they're kicking it up and kicking it up and I'm lasting a whole lot longer on it than I thought I would. I'm thinking, you know, Rocky thing going on. And uh, finally, uh, he just says, okay, that's good. And I thought, uh-oh, um, that doesn't sound good. He's stopping it, you know. So they start winding it back down. And he's not saying anything. He's overlooking at a computer screen. He's not talking to me and his assistant's there with him. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, what's he going to tell me now? I, I don't know. I've got some kind of heart condition and I have to live with that. And so I'm worried about it. And, and so I'm sitting there and I'm uh, getting my shirt back on. You know, you have to do that with your shirt off and all these things. And so they're unplugging me. I'm getting my shirt back on. And he turns around to me and he says, you're fine. 
Go ride your bike. I was like, yes. What good news. There's nothing wrong with my heart. I'm really glad to hear that. Well, there's a reason the doctor takes that approach. Sometimes, what's wrong with your heart doesn't demonstrate itself until you're under a little bit of strain. That's what they're doing. They're putting you under a little bit of strain to see what's going on with your heart. So they keep, you know, kicking it up a notch, kicking it up a notch. And hopefully if there's a problem, it'll show itself and it'll reveal itself in this, all these mechanisms going on. Well, God does the same thing. God wants us to be aware of the condition of our heart. And so He allows us to go through certain stresses and to experience certain stressors in order that that strain, that load that we're under, take things that might be hidden from normal view and bring them to the surface. Because God is interested in the condition of our heart. It's really hard to preach on this when in your own life, my life, God has put me under certain stressors in order to reveal some things that are wrong and sickly in my heart. So it's hard to come before you. I don't want you, as we address these issues today, to kind of think, well, you know, Bart thinks he's got it together, so he's going to tell us how how to get it together. I'm coming to you confessionally that God has put me under certain strains and revealed things in my heart that He is very disappointed with that needs some major heart work. And so in our lesson today, we're going to look at Jesus working with some people and putting them under some stressors to cause them to have some heart problems revealed. Now think about this. This doctor that I went to, very knowledgeable, experienced. If Imagine that he had found some problems, serious problems. And he had stopped me on the treadmill and said, stop, 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 stop right there, stop. You have a serious heart problem. I need to tell you, sit down here, I want to explain to you what's going on with your heart. And we have some further tests that we need to do. Imagine if in that moment, I just kind of blew him off and walked away from him and disregarded the input that he gave me. You would think me, and rightly so, a foolish man. Jesus through the Scriptures, and in this particular story, takes some people and He puts them on His treadmill. And His treadmill reveals some serious heart problems. And they completely ignore Him. So much so that it is to their ruin. So join me in number one, 
Jesus reveals the symptoms of our heart problems. The Pharisees were people who thought that they could avoid the need for the grace of God by being religious. They felt like they themselves were not sinners like the rest of the world. And their self-righteousness made them feel like they were not in need of the mercy of God. They were not in need of the grace of God. That they were so superior to other human beings that God certainly saw them as worthy of His kingdom, not by faith and grace and mercy, but by religious activity and self-righteousness and pride. And so these guys really thought they were flying under the radar of the need for God's grace. And they felt, because of that, that they could put other people on the spot and point out that they, the other people, were in need of God's grace because they were not as good or as outwardly righteous as the Pharisees. So the Pharisees saw themselves as superior by comparison. So they would look at people, find those people's faults, congratulate themselves that they were not like those people, And then look down upon those people and accuse or criticize them for the lack of comparative righteousness. In other words, lacking what would be in comparison to them as superior human beings. And so they developed a whole system of that, wherein they spent their time analyzing everyone except themselves. And they were good at it. They not only were good at it, they built a system wherein they could send their entourages, their representatives, their liaisons, their ambassadors to other groups of people, other towns, other teachers, and analyze them and make Pronouncements. So the Pharisees were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they sent some guys out to monitor Jesus. Let's watch him. Y'all keep a good eye on him and send us a report if he's not living up to our standards. So they watch Jesus, they observe him, they see how he teaches, they see how his disciples live, and they find him in error in a particular area that to them was one of the most outwardly visible ways of comparing yourself to other people. And that is, can you keep the stain of the world off of your hands and out of your bodies? And so they sent out a group, and the group monitored Jesus. And verse 1 says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Here's the entourage sent from Jerusalem to examine Jesus and his disciples. And they said, verse 2, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, 
for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So back then they had this concept of how a person became sinful or impure. They said the way that a person becomes sinful or impure is first they come into contact with the wrong kind of people. You get out in that marketplace, you're probably going to brush up against one of them. Some of those. And so when you come out of the marketplace, if you've come up near or been around some of those, or one of them, it's very important that you not only wash your hands, but that you ceremonially wash your hands. If you remember in John chapter 2 at the miracle, the wedding at Cana, that there were six stone water pots that the Jews used to rinse their hands ceremonially to prove that they had washed the filth of those kind of people off of them so that the filth of those kind of people could not get in them and taint them. And so they saw themselves as people who did not want to come into contact with those kind of people. Whatever you want to classify as those kind of people. And then they thought also that foods would make you unclean. Now some of that they inherited from God in His teaching about the clean foods, but they went far beyond that to where Jesus said that when they got ready to eat their soup, they would strain their soup to try to make sure that a gnat had not flown into the soup while it was either being cooked or prepped or served. Because if that one gnat got inside you, you could be sinful. So they would strain the soup. They would have never really prospered in Louisiana food. You, you ruin a good gumbo if you strain it. Then, there was one other thing, and there were objects. They saw that not only were there unclean people and unclean uh, foods, partially inheriting that clearly from God's Word, but twisting it in a way that totally missed the point, they thought that objects would become unclean either by their use or by them being touched by these unclean people. And so they would especially wash if they had gone out into town or out of the house and come into contact with any kind of objects. Those objects could make them unclean and then it would get in their stomach. And and so they had this system of how they were going to deal with these objects and these people and these foods. And that was to take and make all of these rules above and beyond what the law says, and turn it into traditions that the elders pass down and then rate everybody by those things. And so that's what they did. So they went to Jesus at a dinner party and watched him eat. And you can hear them. And you can see they're side-eyeing each other. Jesus and his disciples come in to the dinner party. They all fall right into the table. And they all dig right into their plate. And the Pharisees and their entourage, they start side-eyeing each other going, you see that? See them over there? Do you see what they're doing? 
He cannot be a teacher of truth if he will let his disciples eat after contacting that filth that lives in our community. There's no way he could be righteous. So they put Jesus on the spot. And by the way, bad idea. Because if you put Jesus on the spot, he's going to put you on the treadmill. And he's going to put you on the treadmill in such a way that it's going to make it really obvious what you're like. So they put Jesus on the spot. He puts them on the treadmill. They say, you're doing this. And Jesus turns right around and says, excuse me, excuse me. uh, Y'all want to look at the standard of comparison? Let me take you to it. And rather than bringing people out, Jesus brings the word out. And he lays the word right before him and says, you know, back in those commandments that you say you value so much, it says to honor your father and mother. And it even gives a penalty for those who don't let him be put to death. In other words, Jesus is pronouncing these guys worthy of death. And he says, I know your scheme. You see, back then, as should be today, children were responsible to help take care of their parents. And as their parents aged and became infirm, mom and dad could no longer work the farm, they could no longer run the business, the children would then take care of them. And whatever need that they had, they would support them, they would minister to them, they would see to it that they were fed and clothed and housed, and that all the help that they could give them, they would give them. And so that was a responsibility inside the Jewish community. What these guys did to keep from having to lose their savings, to keep from having to spend their wealth, is they would put their money in a trust fund devoted to none other than God Himself. So they would take their nest egg, their money, their wealth, and they would say, I have X number of dollars worth of gold or silver or property, whatever, and they would say, I am pledging it to God. And it looked real righteous. But the problem was this. They had a little hook in it. At any point, they decided that they wanted to unpledge it, they could. And so while their parents were ailing and aging and infirm and needing food, clothing, shelter, and care. These guys had their money in this account, so-called, pledged to God and said, I can't use it to help mom and dad. I know they're hungry. I know they need some new shoes and a new coat. I know that their house has some needs to be tended on. I know that they have some medicinal things that we could take care of. But I'm so sorry. I have tied up my assets to God. Jesus said, You're wrong. And suddenly he blows up their heart and shows that these men, and he lists five things about them. Let me share them with you real quick. He first says, you're unloving. Look there 
in verse 5. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And this, thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your children. They were unloving. They didn't love their parents. They loved their money. They were unloving. Then he goes on to say, you're hypocrites. He says it. Verse 7, you hypocrites. See, you're talking like you're serving God, but you're not. You're serving yourself. And God sees right through that. He knows your heart. He knows your plans. He knows how you're executing all of these things. He knows your motives. He knows all of this and He knows that this is sheer hypocrisy. Clear hypocrisy. He goes on to say that they're actually distant from God. Look in verse 8. This people honors me with their lips. That's the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you praise something with your mouth that you do not truly love or find praiseworthy. They'd come to church and they'd sing the hymns. They would quote the verses. They would recite the psalms. They would be involved in all of those things. They would say the Shema, which was the way that they entered into worship. Uh, The Lord, hear Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This beautiful statement that they would make as a statement of faith, they would say, but their lips were not connected to their heart. 